Well, good morning, and uh, may I add my welcome to that of Rob's. Uh, we'll be looking at John chapter 20, verses 24 to the end of the chapter, and in the church Bibles, or the visitors' Bibles, that is on page 907, John chapter 20, beginning to read at verse 24. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see his hands, the mark of the nails, and place my finger in the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands, and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. May I pray for you and for me, please. Our gracious, loving Heavenly Father, grant please by your Spirit and for the honor of your risen, glorified Son, please that I might speak the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. Amen. Well, sometimes a week fly by, flies by very, very quickly. Uh, for example, when you're on holiday, other times, however, a week can drag on forever, it seems. Like when you're waiting to learn school exam results or to hear back about the medical tests uh, that you recently undertook. Well, in our passage in John chapter 20, if you look between the space between verse 25 and 26, well, there isn't a space, literally, but there is the passage of seven days, or more literally, eight days, rather, and the Greek would make it sound like it's a week, but it's actually eight days. There's a time gap. And for Thomas, one of the original 12, I suspect that week must have felt interminable, long-lasting. Because you see, earlier, the disciples, for example, in verse 25, had told Thomas that they had met the risen Jesus. Look back earlier at verses 19 to 23. And these disciples insisted to Thomas, we have seen the Lord. And because Thomas wasn't there, that must have created a deep and profound tension for Thomas. He had the word of others, but he didn't have the experience of others. And I think this is precisely where the shoe pinches for anyone today. 
right here and now. How can you be sure that Jesus was resurrected from the dead without seeing or without meeting the risen Christ? Can you today be certain without having seen for yourself? And if you can, and hopefully most of us can in this room, there's still another question. So what? So what that you believe that Jesus is risen from the dead? Well, here's where my first of three points, and I'm, I'm a bit bewildered. They all begin with the letter P, and I hadn't even planned that. But here's where the, the first of my three points enters in, namely the problem. And the problem has two faces to it. There's Thomas's, and then secondly, it is ours. Let, let's start with Thomas. Why was Thomas missing in action when Jesus came into the locked room and stood, in verse 19, among his disciples? Why did Thomas miss it when Jesus said to the disciples, Peace be with you? Thomas was absent when Jesus showed his disciples his hands, his side, the burying of the scars of the crucifixion two days earlier. So Thomas did not experience, look more closely at verse 20, Thomas didn't experience what the other disciples experienced, namely an overjoy when they saw the Lord. And I think we must assume in verse 22 that Thomas missed receiving the poured out spirit. I could be wrong there, but he certainly wasn't in the room. Why wasn't he there? John is absolutely silent as to the reason, because it's more significant, not why he wasn't there, what's significant is he wasn't there. And I'll explain. See, his problem is more profound than a mere matter of absence. His problem is almost beyond words. See, Thomas hears his colleagues, and remember who they are. They are the other disciples, now apostles. That's important in this story. He hears his colleagues in verse 25 telling him, we have seen the Lord. And again, remember who is telling Thomas this. This news, because it's crucial, because if you spot who is telling Thomas that we've seen the Lord and whom he's not believing, this zeroes in on Thomas's real problem. He's dismissing the witness of eyewitnesses, those whom he had every good reason to trust. Instead, Thomas wants what they earlier had received from Jesus, namely the opportunity to see Jesus' hands and side. This is what Thomas believes will solve his problems, verse 25. Thomas effectively argues, I will not believe it because I've not seen it. I think we can say Thomas is working on the assumption that you can only believe what you can see. And hang on to that point. And I don't want to be too hard on Thomas because arguably I think that's, that's our problem. All of us are, if you will allow me, we are all absent from meeting the risen Jesus in that, in that room. All of us are like Thomas and what he experienced in that long week between verses 25 and verse 26. 
and if you will bear with me for a moment, making things even worse for you and me, if that's possible, is where we are culturally or where we are at this point in history. And this is vitally important to keep in mind. This is especially true for you guys at school. Very profoundly true. Because what you're going to be meeting already in some of the lessons, and as Rob prayed for those who are going on to more education, to university, you will undoubtedly encounter a skepticism. Not, not a rejection of Christianity. You don't have to reject it. You just be skeptical that anything of faith can relate to history. But that's also true as to why you and I meet incredulity from our colleagues, uh, our friends, maybe even our family members. Because you see, for many people today, faith, whatever that is, well, faith is totally different than, say, a knowledge of physics or geography or economics. And that's the background music, or the other the fancy term is that's the, that's the cultural narrative that people have accepted, and that brings me to my second point: the proof. So the problem, the proof. Now I use the word proof advisedly because it's a slippery eel. Because you can prove almost anything if you try hard enough, and you can accept anything if you try hard enough. Now look. It almost goes without saying, but we, we need to be clear on this. The resurrection, that moment when Jesus rose from the dead, no one actually saw that moment. Uh, there were uh, no news photographers or video filming. And even nowadays, even if there was video filming, some people would say it, it's fake news people. No one saw the moment when Jesus not just simply rolled up the garments, but passed through the garments. And he didn't need the tombstone to be rolled away to let him out. What the New Testament offers us is the eyewitness testimony of those who saw, met, and had a meal with Jesus. And here's the point. As utterly staggering as it is, the proof of the resurrection is Jesus himself. Jesus is the proof. What convinces and persuades his disciples, and in another letter of the New Testament, 1 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul will write to the Corinthians that more than 500 people, in addition to the apostles, met the risen Jesus, some of whom were still alive when Paul was writing to them. So I guess he could have said, look, if you don't believe me, go and ask some of these guys that, that met the risen Jesus met the risen Jesus. There is no external to Jesus proof of the resurrection than Jesus himself. Jesus is not dependent upon something else to verify that he's alive. That's vitally important for you and me to, to keep in mind. Now, the confirmation that Thomas receives in verse 27, let's, let's read more closely because something fascinating happens here. Jesus graciously and compassionately meets Thomas and invites him to touch and see. And in effect, Jesus kindly says, Okay, Thomas, if this is what you think you need, I'll offer it to you. But I'm intrigued. I, I could be wrong. But John does not explicitly tell us 
that Thomas did touch and see. What we are told is Thomas comes with the highest human expression of acknowledgement as to who Jesus is, my Lord and my God, and Jesus does not rebuke him. Verse 28, this is believing Thomas, not doubting Thomas, so perhaps we could change his name. He's no longer doubting Thomas. This is the highest ex uh, exclamation of who Jesus is in John's gospel. He saw the risen Jesus. That's all the proof he needs. Ah, but are we back to our original problem? We weren't there in the room. And to the best of my knowledge, I don't think any of you have seen physically the risen Jesus or had breakfast on the beach with the risen Jesus. And that raises my final point. And I would submit to you, I think it's the most important point for you this morning, the promise. Consider this. Thomas's real problem, and I mean the real problem, wasn't his absence from the room when the other disciples met with Jesus. His real problem was his unwillingness to listen and trust the eyewitnesses of the other disciples, of whom he had no reason to doubt. That's important. Do you remember the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe? One of the best reasons for having children, I think, is so that you get to read it to them. And if you've never read this book, I envy you. Please read it. Well, you probably know the story anyway. Do you remember Lucy, um, one of the children, uh, she and her siblings are in this country um, house, I guess, yeah, country house, um, live, living with uh, a professor during the Second World War when bombs were falling on London. And Lucy had this experience of going through the wardrobe, uh, going into Narnia, and meeting Mr. Tumnus, you know the rest of the story. And she comes back, and her siblings don't believe a word that she says. And uh, it causes disruption amongst the, the siblings. And they go to the professor in whose house they were staying. Uh, the two older children, Peter and Susan, and they explain what their, their sister Lucy was saying to them, and, and the professor was silent. He listened very intently, which puzzled the two older children. And then there comes this point. Anyone could see from the old man's face that he was perfectly serious. Then Susan pulled herself together and said, but Edmund, that's the other uh, sibling, said that they'd only been pretending. That is the point, said the professor, which certainly deserves consideration, very careful consideration. For instance, if you will excuse me for asking these questions, does your experience lead you to regard your brother or your sister as the more reliable? I mean, which is the more truthful? Well, that's just the funny thing about it, sir, said Peter. Up until now, I'd, I'd have said Lucy every time. And what do you think, my dear, said the professor, turning to Susan. Well, said Susan, in general, I'd say the same as Peter. But this couldn't be true, all this about a wood and, and having a meal with a fawn. It just can't, it doesn't happen. Well, that's more than I know, said the professor. But a charge of lying against someone whom you've always found truthful is very serious thing, a very serious thing indeed. A very serious thing indeed to, to question those that you've previously found truthful. Now, Thomas again, let's go back to him. Thomas's insistence, I must see and touch for myself. 
is in fact flawed, or at best, is actually irrelevant. What do I mean? Well, yes, Jesus is very, very kind to Thomas, graciously so. But see even more how graciously kind Jesus is to you and to me. For Jesus says in verse 29 to Thomas, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Here is the promise that Jesus is making to you. I guess the question, though, is, well, how, thank you, but how can anyone believe without having seen? Well, the answer is both simple and profound. Take seriously the historic eyewitness accounts of those who met the risen Jesus. John tells us, look at the end of our passage, which is really the reason why he has written this gospel. Do you spot it in verse 30? Now, Jesus did many other signs signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe. You may believe. You who weren't in that upper room, you who didn't have breakfast on the beach with Jesus, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. You see, John writes for the purpose he, know, he, he knows his readers, you and I. We weren't in that upper room. But our absence is not defeating because John and the other eyewitnesses are those whom Jesus commissioned and whom, upon whom Jesus pours out his spirit. It's these men and women whom Jesus commissioned to spread the gospel that he has died and he has risen. And it's extraordinary. I find it mind-blowing. If you are a Christian here in this room this morning, who know the Lord Jesus, know him to be your Savior, know him to be your Lord, do you know that you are here and believing and experiencing this life in Christ precisely because of what Jesus promised? It's a miracle. And you are, and I are offered by the risen Lord Jesus what he wants for us. He wants the eyewitness testimony and ministry of those who met with the risen Jesus so that we may know the risen Jesus. Just as an aside, if you, if you are interested in why this idea of first century eyewitness testimony is so crucial, um, I commend Richard Bauckham's Jesus and the Eyewitnesses. I mean, it's a heavy tome, but it is an exquisitely helpful book. Uh, you can also find on, on YouTube, which seems to be the resource of just about everything I know lately, um, a fascinating interview discussion between Glenn Scrivener and Peter Williams uh, of Cambridge. It's the, um, I think it's called Speak Life. It's that website. And they talk about uh, history and why a lot of contemporary historians don't want to deal with the idea of the supernatural. They just take it as a, a precondition that, no, 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 nothing, nothing, nothing that is supernatural could possibly be historical. They're responding to, I think, a fascinating, um, making it sound like all I ever do is listen to podcasts. 
Well, it's all I ever do, really, <laughs> quite frankly. There's a fascinating, um, uh, you know, the rest is history with Tom Holland and Dominic Sandbrook. In December, they did a, a two-part podcast on Jesus at Christmas and then the historical claim uh, that Jesus rose from the dead. And so Glenn Scrivener and uh, Peter Williams are keying off that podcast and really saying, yeah, Tom Holland, who doesn't accept necessarily the Christian gospel, nonetheless is intrigued with the, poss- with, with the possibility that something happened to Jesus. So I commend uh, that time-wasting, oh no, that really helpful um, listening to that, to that podcast. But you see, let, let's be clear as I come to an end about what the scriptures are telling us. The Lord Jesus is risen from the dead because he is Lord and he's God's anointed Messiah. Death could never have held him. That's what Peter preaches in Acts chapter 2. Death cannot hold him. He wasn't resuscitated. He was dead, but raised to a new kind of life. What Paul calls in 1 Corinthians, the first fruit of what is to come in history. But if Christ has not been raised, oh no, actually Paul puts it a different way. If there's no future resurrection of the dead in history, then Christ has not been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, argues Paul, then your sins are not forgiven. More to the point, if Christ has not been raised, please do not consider Christianity. It is a complete, utter waste of time because it's fraudulent. Don't even think about trying to follow Jesus in both the ups, but more particularly the downs of Christianity if Christ has not been raised. You have far better things to do on a Sunday than than. to to be a Christian if Christ has not been raised, but he has been raised. And that changes everything. Here's the eyewitness claim, Christ is risen. And in fact, as a friend of mine used to say, after Easter, always Easter. John tells us his gospel is about, it's not simply that, oh, here's an important bit of doctrine for you to accept that Jesus rose from the dead. It is important doctrine, but it's also that we ourselves might believe not only that Christ is the the Messiah, but that we might have life, life in his name. Jesus is is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, even though you weren't in that upper room, you may have life right here now, life in his name, life through his crucified self-giving as the sin-bearing Savior, life. Life in his name through his triumph over death. Life in his name because he has ascended to glory at the right hand of the Father. Life because he is Lord over his church. Life because he continues to rescue, even today, women and men and children. Life in his name because one day he will He will return and restore all existence, restore all creation. We weren't there that Easter morning or in the room in Jerusalem or as Luke's gospel narrates it, on the road to Emmaus. But you're not leaping into the dark. You're not doing something really goofy by believing all of this. Eyewitness accounts of having met with the risen Christ and also what the resurrection means to us right now, 
you can read these accounts again and again and again and again. And we must. Because listen, I don't think I'm the only person that struggles with this, but I think you will have some doubts from time to time, or at least butterflies in your stomach about the reality of the gospel. I mean, how could you not? Did Jesus really rise from the dead? Because friends at school will, will dismiss it. Lecturers will mock it or at least subvert any foundation for believing this. Colleagues, even some family members. And just simply things that you hear or read today will make you think, man, am I, am I dreaming this? Just remember, I think some very helpful advice that... Um, I had once been told, I think you probably have heard it as well. Don't be afraid, please. And I say this particularly to younger people, but actually to those of us who are a little bit older than young people. Don't be afraid to ask any question. Do not, don't, don't hold back. But equally, don't be afraid to doubt your doubts. Doubt your doubts. Go back to the Gospels. Go to the eyewitness accounts in the book of Acts and see how the apostles preached to both Jew and Gentile. Read again Paul's insistence. And especially when the time comes, and it will come, when a Christian parent or a Christian loved one is facing death, this is when it really counts, guys. This is when it really, really counts. And when you and I reach the point, that same point, then we need each other. I need you, and you will need me, to remind me again and again that this is real. Read me the scriptures, sing me the hymns. Well, not every hymn, but most of the hymns. Because I need to be reminded of this. We need to be reminded to, of what, I think it was Francis Schaeffer who called it, true truth. Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. We can have life. Life in his name. Amen.